Good morning, everyone. I'm gonna give this one shot to adjust, and if I can't figure it out, yep, nope, not a chance. Okay, hi, good morning. <laughs> Welcome to 2023, happy new year. New year, new you, right? That's how that works. I'm really glad you're here this morning. Uh, 2023, it sounds kind of futuristic, doesn't it? At least for those of us who are older in the room. Uh, anyway, regardless if you're here, hi, regardless if you're here exhausted because your neighbors lit fireworks way too late into the night, or perhaps you were the neighbor who lit those fireworks way late in tonight. Thank you for that, by the way. Uh, we're glad you're here. Either one of you, we're glad that you're here. This morning, we're gonna look at the book of Ecclesiastes, the last few verses, in fact. The culmination of all of the book, all of the words of the wise, the sayings of the wise, the teacher, the son of David, king of Israel. As a point of review, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, it's in the Old Testament, it's one of three books of wisdom in the Old Testament, in fact. There's Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, all of which are asking the question, what does it mean to live a life well? What does it mean to live an exceptional life? It's a great subject for a New Year's Day sermon, right? Okay, great. What does it mean to live life well? If you spend most of the time, if you spend any time reading this book, what you'll find in Ecclesiastes is that the author's thesis is everything in life is meaningless. It's all meaningless. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything is meaningless. Uh, it's kind of sour. As one commentator puts it, the book of Proverbs is like the positive, optimistic person, hopeful that if you seek wisdom, if you do what, they, what she says, life will go well. If that's true, then Ecclesiastes is a sharp, middle-aged critic who's been beat down by life. With a theme like vanity, vanity, all is vanity, everything is meaningless. You can see why the books receive that sort of caricature. But the question Ecclesiastes poses still stands. What does it look like to live life well? What does it look like to live an exceptional life? What does it mean to live well? So let's read our passage together this morning. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And my ESV Bible is on page 559. I think it's the same for you, hopefully. Same print. Let's listen to the word of God. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. They're like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. This is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, for this new year. It's a wonderful thing. It's not ironic or coincidental that we get to worship you on the first day of 2023. I pray, Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, that you would encourage me and all those in this room with what you have to say in your word, that Christ, you would be magnified and lifted up, that our hearts would be encouraged and motivated for this upcoming year. In this name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, a little over 10 years ago, there was a German <coughs> programmer by the name of Stefan Thomas. He was bid out to make an explainer page about cryptocurrency. What is cryptocurrency? How does it work? He's an expert in the field. 
He did his job and he was paid in 7,000 units by the company that hired him to do it. And he went home and he wrote down what he thought was an unexceptional password, put it in three different places. Come later to find out, to his surprise, that the cryptocurrency was Bitcoin. And as of around July of last year, it was worth over $220 million. Not 7,000 credits, but $220 million. But here's the catch. Stefan lost two of the places he put the password. He had a third, but it's an iron key. I've never heard this before. It's a super strong military-grade safety hard drive thing. But the thing is, you have 10 chances to put in your password before you lose everything on the drive. And Stefan has tried eight and lost every time. He has two more chances to try for this password, to collect this huge extraordinary investment. So here's my question to start off the new year for you this morning. What would you have done if you knew how much that password was actually worth? How, what would you think Stefan would have done if he knew how much that password was actually worth? There's little doubt in my mind that many of us would have done whatever it took to make sure, in the words of Gandalf, that we kept that password secret, that we kept it safe, that we knew where it was, we could find it, but hindsight's 2020. Stefan didn't know in the beginning what it was, what he had in his possession. Much of Ecclesiastes is the teacher's own admission of this hindsight's 2020 sort of experience. Throughout the whole book, he says things like, why search out fortune and wealth just to give it to children who squander it, or who, who argue over it, who waste it? Why pursue pleasure just to be unsatisfied by its ultimate sour taste? Why does it matter to be the smartest, the wisest person in the room if you can be overtaken and killed by a fool? Solomon, likely the, book, the author of this book, he had it all. He had done it all. He was the wisest man in the world, a king. If you think you're rich, he was far wealthier. If you think you're powerful, he was a king. If you think you're popular, or well-esteemed, he was not just a king, but the wisest king, where people traveled from all over the world just to hear the words that he spoke, yet he was still seeking to answer the question, what does it mean to live an exceptional life? What does it mean to live life well? Many of us this morning come into the morning like Solomon in the beginning of his life. We're just not yet convinced that the things of the world won't satisfy us. We still think they might. We still think we can find life under the sun. We believe that just a little more money, just that next thing might bring us that contentment, that fulfillment, that fulfillment that we're longing for. And some of us in this room are like Solomon as he's writing this book. We're exhausted. We're beaten down by life's disappointments. It feels like everything is meaningless. High size 2020. Though many of us haven't lost $220 million in a lost password, if you have, let me know, I'll try and help you. Only if you split it with me. Um, not a lot, okay. But we have known this hindsight's 2020 sort of experience. We know what it's like to wish we knew the result before we entered into the arena, to know the answer before making the decision. If you had known what last year had awaited, what last year what was waiting for you, how much different would your life have been? How different would the decisions you have made been? If we know now what we will know, January 1st, 2024, 
How much differently would we live each day this year? These final few verses, the author of Ecclesiastes sums up the teacher's thoughts and he offers us a glimpse into what awaits us in our future. It's a warning that the seemingly unexceptional things in life actually are worth a tremendous amount. And the good news for us, dear Christian, is that God has given us the answer to that. We know what the exceptional looks like because God's answered it. He does so in three ways. He gives us an answer for wisdom. He gives us an answer for living. And he gives us an answer for our offense. For wisdom, for living, for our offense. Let's look at me. There are Bibles in front of you. Grab one. Let's turn and look at verse 9 through 12. In verse 9, it initiates a final transition of the voice of Ecclesiastes. The first, first eight verses of chapter 12 is the final crescendo of this teacher, his last piece of wisdom. And they end in verse 8 just as equally as sad and weary as the book began. Vanity, vanity, look in verse 8. Vanity, vanity, everything is meaningless. But notice then in verse 9 that the voice changes. It's no longer the teacher, but the author of the letter who's speaking. And it's their turn now to provide the final word. First, they describe the character and the passions of the teacher. It's a pursuit of wisdom. He's imparted knowledge. He's pondered, he's searched, he's studied, he's written truth. He describes this teacher as someone who's proficient, who's disciplined, who's a studied man. In other words, the teacher knows what he's talking about. He has devoted himself to a life of pursuing wisdom. Then in verse 11, the author describes the words of the wise teacher. The words of the wise are like goads. I have to admit, I had to look that word up. I didn't know what that meant. It means to provoke, to push, to move forward. It motivates. The wisdom words motivate us to move forward. But not only does it move us, it also provides stability. Notice what it says. It's firmly fixed like nails. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, he says in verse 11, there's one source of this wisdom. There's only one place to seek out how to live an exceptional life. It's the shepherd. By that, he means God. But in verse 12, we see this word. He says, beware. Beware. It's a phrase that's meant to grab our attention. Beware of anything beyond these words. And anything, excuse me, in other words, any other source of wisdom. Beware of any source of artificial, of false, of fake wisdom. Because ultimately, as you see in verse 12, it ends in never-ending search. It lands in never relieved weariness. He says there's no end to making books and only exhaustion and disappointment will follow. In other words, the search for an exceptional life outside of God's wisdom is an endless and ultimately unsatisfying pursuit. There's a myth about the first king of Corinth named Sisyphus. Now, I did research, there's multiple versions of this myth, so if you have a different version, you can tell me later. But the myth of Sisyphus, he's a clever king who betrayed Zeus in order to escape death. He gave up one of Zeus's secrets in order to cheat it. Zeus, being the king of all the Greek gods, found out he was mad, and he punishes Sisyphus to roll a boulder to the top of the hill. And this punishment was meant for him because he was prideful. He thought he was the most clever of all those that are clever. But what he didn't realize was Zeus is just as clever as he was. So he cast a spell on the boulder. And every time Sisyphus got close to reaching the top of the hill, he would see the boulder roll back down, back, 
behind him. For all of eternity. Sisyphus would plan his route, he'd execute his plan, he'd get so close, and then it would slip and fall. For all of eternity, just like this. To pursue so-called wisdom outside of God is to roll the boulder up the hill and to be dissatisfied every time as we watch it roll, uh, roll down by us on the way back down the hill. That is the point of Ecclesiastes. Believe it or not, we participate in Sisyphean adventures all the time. We're convinced all the time that the boulders in our life are worth rolling up the hill. Maybe, just maybe, it'll finally do what we think it might. We roll the boulder of success up the mountain. We orient our entire lives in pursuit of the next grade, the next promotion, only to be foiled by its fleetingness, by its trickery, that the reward, actually, there's another behind it, and another, and another. There's another rung of the ladder to climb. There's actually probably someone who's doing it better than you. We roll the boulder of adoration and fame up the mountain of popularity, We change how we live, how we dress, how we act, to have it slip away at a moment's notice because of a mistyped tweet or a misspoken word. We roll the boulder of health, of safety, of comfort, living as if we can control our own lives and the lives of our family to protect them from every hardship until the the pain in your side is not muscle fatigue but cancer, until you've lost the one that you love. Or for like my wife and I, this past fall, you hear from the doctor you've lost a pregnancy. The truth is that we all have felt the disappointment and the pain of watching that boulder roll down the hill as we stand at the top of the mountain. The thing we thought would make everything right again rolls back down. You see, the author is reiterating for us the entire theme of the book. What he wants you to know is that true joy, true passion, the exceptional life will never be found in anything but God. It can't. And our first step in this new year is to reckon with the weight of that reality. Reckon with what the preacher says. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Everything's gonna fall short. It won't ultimately satisfy. Listen, I know this is a difficult pill to swallow at 11 o'clock in the morning on the first day of a new year. But I want you to take some time this week and I want you to ask yourself, what is your boulder? What is it, as you think about 2023, what's the thing that you're hoping for? The thing that you think, if I finally get this, it'll be okay. That is your boulder. Where or to whom do you run to feel safe, to feel secure, to feel seen, to feel heard? God's answer to our wisdom is that he is our wisdom. Searching for a life well lived outside of him is meaningless. It always falls short. A good question you might be asking is, so what's our alternative? Well, first, God's answer is for our wisdom is that he is our wisdom. Secondly, God's answer for our living. Let's look at verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The end of the matter, the final word. All that you've been, the author is basically saying, if you've not heard anything else, hear this. This is the most important part. Your only solution in life is to fear God and to obey him. It's pretty simple. Fear God, obey him. It's just two things. 
Like Luke Gehrig, the Hall of Fame baseball player, said, hitting a baseball is the simplest thing in the world, but it doesn't mean it's easy. A feeling we all might be having right now. It's easy. Or excuse me, it's simple. Fear God, obey him. What does it mean to fear God? To fear God, the word fear, when you hear it, I think of, you know, scary moments. Situations of dread or terror. That's not the type of fear that he's talking about. Nor does the Bible talk about fearing God in that way. To fear God is not the same as my daughter fearing the boogeyman or the monster in the closet. If I'm being honest, me fearing the boogeyman and the monster in the closet. Yes, sometimes the bathroom light's still on when we fall asleep. Martin Luther, the great theologian, offers a helpful distinction. He says there's two types of fear. The one of a fear of a bully. Potential danger, that's servile fear. That's the sort of fear that the the captor or the captured fears of his tormentor when he approaches. But the fear of God is filial fear. This is more like the fear that a child has for his father, a father who's loving and who's kind, who makes them feel safe. It's the type of fear that we might disappoint. We love someone so much we don't want to disappoint them. The fear of God then is first to know and experience how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, He provides for you. And then in return, we have a desire to please him. We don't want to offend him. Not out of a motivation, out of a fear of punishment, but because we love him so dearly. The real reason why, Christian, why we don't fear God's punishment is because it's already been given to Jesus. There's no more punishment left to be had. Christ has taken it all. We reflect on that and we fear God. We're in awe of his wonder and his grace. And we say, I don't want to displease the father who loves me so he gave up his only son. That's the type of fear that the teacher is talking about. What does it mean to obey? Again, this word obey might be a dirty word. We may immediately think of something like fear-mongering or abuse, overpowering, oppressive. Unfortunately, we're all too familiar with so many stories about leaders who demand obedience for the sake of their own glory, the sake of their own benefit, at the harm of people. And truth be told, the church, the Christian church is not immune from this. We hear stories, maybe some of you have experienced leaders who've been hurtful, who've been demanding of your obedience, not for the church not for the church's obedience to Christ, not for the sake of your purity and your holiness, but for their own benefit. If you're that person, I want to take a moment and just say it's right for you to be suspicious. It's right for you to wonder or to question how is God loving if he demands my obedience just like that person demanded mine. I want to encourage you that God's power is yielded differently than that of your abuser. Remember Philippians 2, 6 through 8, he says this, Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Christ uses his power, he gives up his power for your sake. That's the difference. It's important to note that our obedience to anything is always driven by love. We obey, to obey literally just means we listen intently, we change direction because of, we follow instruction, we give ourselves over to the thing that asks for our obedience. As we've said before, 
we hear the words of assurance from the world that these different things will satisfy and we love what it tells us and so we obey it. We submit ourselves to it. Do what makes you happiest. Disregard anyone who pushes back against you. Don't be truthful because that lie will never hurt anyone unless they hear it. If they're not helping you progress in life, then just cut them out. All these things, by the way, all these false wisdoms live and die. They find their end in desperate and endless cycles. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Obedience to Jesus, that obedience is driven by the same thing, though. It's driven by our love. He says in John 14, if you love me, then obey me. If you love me, then listen to me. To obey God is to love him. To love him is to obey him. So who do we love? One of the things that you may do when you first become a parent is freak out because now you have a kid. That first night after the hospital is crazy. They're like, hey, here's a child. Good luck. Um, Anyway. But after you're done freaking out and gawking after your kid and they've pooped on you for the third time in the middle of the night, it starts to sink in. How do I actually bond well with this kid? How do we form a good relationship? Most psychologists would tell you the absence of demanded obedience is not that route. In fact, those who are just given, those kids who are just given everything they want at any point in time end up becoming spoiled adults, unable to adapt and deal with the hardships of life. Building healthy relationships with your kids looks like both grace and gentleness and comfort and support but also boundaries, obedience. You expect your child to listen, to submit, you to obey you, and you offer them security. The difference between our obedience to God and our obedience to the world is that Christ loves us back. In fact, he loved us first. We sang about that this morning. He fulfills where others cannot or will not He's proven not just by being offered up as our sacrifice, but by being with us. He says, every need, I am there for you. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He finishes every work he starts in us. He's the committed lover who's only asked for our love in return. So how does he ask us to obey? Jesus says in Mark 14, to love your God, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And second is to love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commitment than this. To obey God is to love him and to love people. This is, as verse 13 says, the full duty of man. All that you are ought to be devoted to those two things, to loving him and to loving people. We love as he's loved us. So, two points of application. The first is this. I want you to think this week, who is someone that I can give myself away to? How can I benefit someone in my life this week? How can I go above and beyond in order to help someone in my life? How can I love someone well? Secondly, and this is a little to the side, I want you to consider investing more time this year into learning what it looks like to love well. You all have done a great job this morning. It's the new year and you're here. Pat on the back, way to go. Let's keep it up. Commit next week to being here on Sunday mornings. Look into the order of worship. Look at Sunday schools and community groups. Join one. You can't love people if you're not with people. Consider investing next week, committing next week to showing up again. So God's answer first to our wisdom, secondly to our living, and lastly, God's answer to our offense. Let's look at verse 14. 
what he says. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. To put it simply, friends, judgment is on the way. All things will be unmasked. There'll be no no motive that's not seen, no deed that's not revealed, no moment unhidden. Everything will be seen. Reading this warning might come a bit of a shock as we just talked a lot about how much God loves you. Well, now he gives you a warning. How do we make sense of the warning of his judgment? My wife and I have three kids, Everett, Kendall, and Sutton. We live in a cul-de-sac in Spring Branch. It's great. Everett's pretty obedient for a five-year-old. She loves staying close to the parents. Kendall is the adventurous one, though. And the road that our cul-de-sac connected to is called Conrad Sour. It's the busiest street in our neighborhood. Cars are whizzing by it all the time. And Kendall likes to, to run. She likes to just go wherever. It would actually be unloving of me to not warn her of the, in, the pending danger as she runs towards Conrad Sour Road. It would be, I would be a bad father if I didn't scream, watch out, come back, Kendall, stop as she's running towards the street. To love her is to protect her. To protect her is to warn her that if she keeps traveling the road that she's on, she goes too far in certain directions, it may lead to judgment. It may lead to consequences that could be life-threatening. So similarly, similarly, God's warning is an expression of his love to us. He's screaming at us this morning, watch out, come back. As we run to the street and the cars are whizzing right down the road towards you, creeping ever closer to a collision. God's warning is an expression of his love. The last verse is not just a warning, it's also a promise. It's a comforting promise. The idea of justice is all around our world. We say things like time reveals all things. The truth will eventually come out. What comes around goes around. In the words of the great Johnny Cash, what's done in the dark will be brought into the light. We know it to be true. We want it to be true that judgment comes. We want justice. We want a remedy. We want God's promises to us that all the things will be made right. There will not be a single misgiving, not a single pain, not a single offense done to you that will not be dealt with. Like the blood of Abel, crying out from the ground about the cruelty of his brother Cain who murdered him, your cries of pain are heard by our God and punishment for that is coming. So what do we say to this warning and to this comfort? To those of you who suffer, know that God is with you and that his judgment is coming, his rescue is coming. Like a mother hen, he wishes to gather you underneath his wings, to heal you, to bring you to new life. And for all of us, our lives will be judged The great irony this morning is that though many of us have received pain and affliction, we also dish it out just as often. We're not left alone in the cold and the dark to deal with that though. He's given us an answer to our offenses. He's given us an answer to how to live well considering the fact that we live in abundant sin and his final answer is Jesus. What does it mean to live life well? What does it mean to live an exceptional life? Ecclesiastes does two things. They exist to do two things, to show us how inadequate the answers of wisdom of the world are and how desperately we need the wisdom of God, a higher wisdom. One of the strangest things about me is that I can't watch scary movies, but I do like fast forwarding through them. 
I like stories. I like like the plots and stuff. It's just like too tense. I can't handle the suspense for an hour and a half or two hours. Five minutes is good. So sometimes I'll like watch YouTube like, hey, recap. I can handle five minutes or just scroll through. I have to fast forward to the end of every scary movie just to make sure everything's fine, right? I have to. And sometimes in my bravest moments, it allows me to go back and watch the movie with my eyes open. As a Christian, well, the church father Athanasius once described Jesus as God's creative wisdom incarnate. To live life well is to devote ourselves to him. To come with grips with what the teacher has said, but he's told us that all things in life, they're sought after as the centerpiece of life and joy, of contentment, it's going to be worthless. The boulder's gonna roll down the hill. If they're not rooted in the author and the sustainer of all things, Christ, then it won't work. But out of God's generosity, he's given us a peek into the future. He's let us watch the end of the movie so that we can go back and keep our eyes open. God's judgment is coming, but more importantly, Christian, God's judgment has come and has been given to Christ. It was given to his son for all of those who have faith in him. His saving work, his resurrection, that is our hope. You can move into the mystery of this year, of 2023, knowing with confidence that your life is secure no matter what happens, no matter what the scary movie might show. You are secure in the hands of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Again, for this new year, I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would anchor our hearts in you. That like you tell us the wisdom, that you would motivate us to move, to run away from the things of life that we look to for contentment, ultimately. To run to people, to love them, to be helped by them. That you would move us to action this year, but also that you would securely fasten us in the hope, the true hope of your resurrection, the hope of reunion, of renewal, because of your work, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.